You are listening to episode 28 of the Lewis and Kyle show with Wes K.O. I feel like right now there's that dichotomy where it's like, oh, like you either have a fulfilling career where you experiment and build cool stuff or you die bureaucrat. And, and that's, that's way too black and white. There's absolutely a spectrum. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show an interview podcast where Lewis and I aim to share tools for success in entrepreneurship, investing, education, and fitness through interviews with inspiring and unconventional mentors, like Wes K.O., who we had on the podcast today. Yes, Wes was an awesome guest. I really enjoyed talking to her. I'm super glad we were able to get her on. She followed me one day on Twitter randomly. I checked her out. I was like, oh, she's awesome. I should get her on the podcast. Read about her, read a couple of her articles, sent her pitch outline of what I'd want to talk about if we could interview her, and here we are. It was an awesome conversation talking about the difference between long-term branding strategies and short-term branding strategies, the benefits and situations of each, how you can apply first principles thinking to thinking about your target customer and how to best appeal to them, thinking about the situation that they're in and how that can help you influence some of your branding decisions. And we also talk about some career advice she has for college students or young adults as they're considering the benefits and trade-offs of going into a job right away, starting a company right away, uh, and how to make the information they're consuming about those decisions more useful. Fantastic conversation, and I'm super excited for you to listen to it. So with that, I'm just going to cut to it. Hello, Wes Cow. Thank you for coming on our show. Hey, guys. Awesome. We're excited to have you. If you could just give us like a quick, short elevator pitch about yourself, just like where you're from, where you got your education, early career, just for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. I'm Wes, I'm a marketer, and I work with CEOs and their teams to design, build, and launch new products or new um, lines of business. So I did this with Seth Godin for the Alt MBA full-time, and now I do this with some exciting clients like Poopery, Professor Galloway, Morning Brew. In terms of my background and how I got started, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I went to school at UC Berkeley at the Haas School of Business. My first job out of college was working at the Gap headquarters in San Francisco. I also have some experience in brand management marketing and corporate retail at L'Oreal and Bear Angels beauty companies. So after that, I moved into tech. So I joined an ad tech startup that eventually got acquired by Snapchat. And then from there moved to New York to work with Seth. Did that for three years. And for the past two and a half years, I've been consulting independently, working directly with clients. Awesome, thank you for providing that clear backstory for us. Uh, a lot of what really interested us in having you on the show is some of the unconventional ways of thinking you have about a lot of these common topics in entrepreneurship, marketing, branding, and you've kind of encapsulated that idea in the concept of a spiky point of view. Can you explain what that is and what the usefulness of it is? We live in a really noisy world. So whatever it is that you're doing, there's thousands of other people who are doing something pretty similar, who have a similar educational background, who have similar work experience. So unless you distinguish yourself, you never really get a chance to prove and show how you actually are different on the inside. So that's why I think it's so important to, de to develop what I call a spiky point of view. So a spiky point of view is a perspective that other people can disagree with. It's a belief that you feel really strongly about and want to advocate for about your realm of expertise. It's your thesis about some topics that, that you know about. And the idea there is that every person has a different, unique way of seeing the world. You're molded by your experiences, your personality, your instincts, 
um, your intuition, and all of these factors have contributed to who you are today and how you make decisions. You can have one event or one set of data points and 10 people can look at those data points and come up with different, 10 different interpretations. So it's not so much, you know, what is that fact as a standalone fact? It's what is my interpretation of that? How do I make sense of it? And what do I recommend going forward? So a spiky point of view showcases all of your thinking, your rigorous thinking, and shows that you're interpreting what's going on around you. And I think the, the exciting thing about a spiky point of view is it's almost impossible to imitate. It's so unique to your life and your view of the world, and it's rooted in conviction and authenticity. And it's really one of the most, one of the easiest ways to stand out and contribute. So not just stand out in, a, in an annoying look at me way, but to stand out and contribute a point of view that helps move a conversation forward. Yeah. I, the spiky point of view thing, like that's really interesting to me. And one thing I want to, I want to learn from you though, is how do you get over the, the hump or like the fear that is attached to standing out in a crowd with a spiky point of view like that? Like most people don't want to be disagreed with and don't want to say something that other people in the room look at them funny for. So how would you recommend someone like get over that fear? That is a great question. No one wants to upset the people around them and paint a target on their back, right? For being, you know, that person who's, who's rocking the boat in the wrong way. That's, that's part of the reason why having a spiky point of view does make you stand up. It's because most people aren't willing to do it and they're afraid of people looking at them differently or thinking that they're stepping out of bounds, that if you do do it, that's why you stand up. So there's a couple elements of a spiky point of view. And the first one, there's five. The first one is that a spiky point of view can be debated. So if everyone agrees with you, then it's not a spiky point of view. It's just a fact or something we all agree on. So, so that's one is you have to be open to debate. The second one is that you have to teach your audience something they don't already know. I think a lot of us have been told that asking questions is great. So we ask a ton of questions, we gather information, especially if you're in marketing or sales, you try to assess, you know, what are the customer's needs? You ask all these questions, but the customer doesn't have endless time and patience to just answer your questions, right? Like every salesperson is doing that to assess their needs and whatnot so that they can better, you know, pitch them. And they're skeptical. They're aware that that's what you're trying to do. So when you come in and you teach that person something that they don't already know, in a way that makes them think differently about their problems, all of a sudden you're standing out because you're adding value right away. Their reaction, you know, you say something, you come into the spiky point of view, their reaction is, oh, I've never thought about it that way before. Or I've never, I've never considered that, that this is actually making me think about a bunch of things in a different way. That's really the, the holy grail goat response is when you, when you offer something that, that it, it makes the other person think about their world a little bit differently. So yeah. that's the second one. Um, the mm -hmm. third one is that a spiky point of view isn't controversial for the sake of it. That's super important. No one likes a contrarian who's, who just likes disagreeing and just likes being disagreeable. So don't just say something because, you know, it feels edgy to disagree with what everyone is saying. This, this, it really should be a hill that you're willing to die on that you actually believe to be true. Fourth is that a spiky point of view is rooted in evidence, but it's not a universal truth by any means. So you should have rationale. You should explain your thought process. You should have first principles or examples to base what you're saying on, 
So you're just not, you know, pulling it out of nowhere, but it's not something where you're waiting for a hundred percent agreement or, or, you know, for it to be fact before you say it out loud. If you do that, then you're, you're never going to be able to say it out loud. And then the last one is that it really requires conviction. So there's an element of bravery here for sure with believing in something enough that you're willing to advocate for it. And with that advocacy comes a bias towards action. And you know, if you think about it, you're trying to convince the other person that this is really best for them. You know, and when we try to convince someone, it's, it's hard to convince someone when you don't really believe it, which is why copying someone's spiky point of view doesn't work because you can't match the level of energy and their conviction behind something that they really believe is true. If you're just like, mm, not really sure if this is true. It just sounds spiky. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, absolutely. And the touch one number three that you said there, interesting thing that I've heard recently is that it's hard for people to remember what it was like to not know something or like, it's hard for us to remember what it was like before we learned a fact. And like that just framed for me, like when I go into a new group saying something that was known by everybody in the last group that I was in doesn't mean that this group knows it, you know, and I can provide that, that point and it, it can provide value. And that's one thing that we want to do with this show is provide real and useful information. And in our pre-call, we talked about the difference between like entrepreneurial porn, where it's just like we, a story of a founder and like how he did it and lived on couches and stuff. And, and that, the difference between that and real and useful information. And, and we want to put out real and useful information. So how do you think that we can best steer our show to, to be real and useful information for our listeners rather than entrepreneurial porn? Yeah, I think that the reason that entrepreneurial porn is so tempting to, to, you know, read constant articles about, and that's why, you know, you see covers of Forbes, Fast Company, TechCrunch, all of these, you see all these stories of founders that talk about their, you know, their essential rags to riches overnight success is because it's really an escape for us from our Mm -hmm. daily slog of doing the work to see that, you know, to see someone else's story and, and that narrative arc that could be 10, 15 years condensed into a thousand word article and to think about how, and dream about how you could be that person too. It's like buying a lottery ticket so that you can dream for those two days before the numbers come out. And I think when we encounter stories like that, it's important to kind of step back and think about what did I actually learn from reading this article? Mm -hmm. What did I actually learn from hearing this story? What am I going to do differently because of it? And a lot of times when you think about that, you realize that the answer is nothing. This was interesting as background information that you're going to tuck in your brain, but we all have too much stuff that we're trying to add to our notion files or Evernote or ever. Like you can gather notes until the cows come home, but if you're not doing something with it, if you're not processing it, if you're not letting it change your behavior and your actions, then, you know, at a certain point, there's diminishing returns with capturing all those notes. So I think really thinking about with, with any piece of content that you consume, how is this immediately useful for my life? And if it's not immediately useful, if it's not going to change my behavior, maybe I can put this aside. And when the time comes, when I think that reading this particular article or this particular topic, is going to change my behavior, you can always search for it. The internet is search driven. So you don't really have to worry about not being able to find things again, but really thinking about, is this making me smarter? Is this changing my behavior before um, indulging in 
what's pretty much entertainment. If you want to just admit that it's entertainment, then that's fine too, yeah. because we all need some entertainment. So let yourself have fun reading things. I'm not saying like, don't read things that you think are fun, but don't confuse entertainment with something educational. If it's not really educational, it's actually just pure entertainment. Yeah, that actually really gets into kind of what I wanted to ask you about next. Uh, and I just have two quick points to make here before I ask this next question is, I agree with that. I think one thing I've been learning from reading a book about podcasting, for example, is the idea of putting a call to action in every episode, at least in a show in this format, that the goal is to actually give people inspiring, actionable tips is like ending the show with a specific call to action to encourage people to not walk away from this saying, I listened to this for an hour and I enjoyed it. What's next? But like giving a specific, now that you've listened to this, here's an awesome idea that Wes suggested, like come up with your own spooky point of view, like some, some idea along those lines that's like encouraging someone to take something that they heard from this conversation and actually lead to some interaction with the material, some engagement with the ideas. Uh, and I wanted to start a discussion real quick about online education because I know some of the involvement you've had with Seth in the past and also some of your current clients are actually teaching courses right along the lines of what you're just talking about. I've shopped for some of these courses before and considered them, whether it's rite of passage, the idea of how writing is thinking and just unless you bring up or unless you engage with what the ideas you're coming up with, you never really know if you've learned them. And David Perel teaches a course about that. And then you know, you pretty much started outlining the first steps of the idea of building your second brain where, okay, I'm reading all this information and putting it into a notion and then, or an Evernote or whatever else. And then I interact with that. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about how individuals should frame the decision of taking one of these quote unquote non-accredited courses, even though it's incredibly valuable content for sure from the Alt MBA or one of these other courses. And then also how you establish it as the creator of these courses. Yeah. Traditionally education, played a few roles that were all conflated and lumped together. So there was that learning material and content piece, but it also served as a stamp of approval that gatekeepers used to hire or keep people out, right? We only, you know, you need a four-year degree or we only hire people from Ivy leagues. Um, and there was also the aspect of community with education. So especially with college that you're, <clears throat> living away from home for the first time. You're having late night debates in your dorm room. You're participating in student clubs. So, so if we specifically think about college, you know, being physically on a campus, it was all of these things that ended up being really transformative for people. So now with the growth of online education, especially with COVID, you know, accelerating that, Definitely. we're seeing all of these elements become decoupled. They're now unbundled. So you can, you can pursue community or you can pursue content only or you can pursue the stamp of approval separately and i think as a learner it's your job to think about what do i want to get from this course if a stamp of approval is important to me then finding a program or course that's accredited or you know part of you know a broader platform like let's say linkedin learning mm -hmm. is a good example or harvard business school online if, if that stamp of approval is important to you, then, then make sure that you're getting that. If you're learning because you want to change your behavior and gain skills that you actually want to use, then that stamp of approval, that certificate, that badge isn't really that important. So I think if you think about a sales course, are you taking a sales course so that you can print out a PDF certificate that shows your boss that you took a sales course, or are you taking a sales course so that you can close sales, get better at prospecting, get better at vetting, you know, prospecting customers, right? So 
thinking about what am I going to get from this? And does this particular online course or workshop give me that? There are a lot of courses now that um, are more geared towards networking and relationships and communities and hands-on doing. And then there's other courses that are more self-paced. And it, there's no judgment here about, oh, well, this is good, this is bad. Sometimes people want something that's self-paced where um, you can access the content unlimited and you can be flexible with when you access that material that fits with some people's learning styles. And then other people want something that helps to keep them accountable. They want to meet other people and do projects with other people and have that element of real-time synchronous, we're all hopping on a call together at the same time doing this thing as, as the experience. So thinking about what is right for me right now in this point in time, what do I want to get out of it? And then using that lens to pick what's the right course for me. I think that's really interesting. And that's a good point about how with college becoming online, and that's, you know, the primary way a lot of people are learning, or at least a significant chunk of their devoted learning attention, that's really shifting, forcing people to have those questions internally. Am I here for the coming of age experience? Am I here to have a piece of paper for a specific gatekeeper on the path I want to go on? Or am I here, you know, for me, example, studying computer science, because I just want to learn those skills to be able to apply them to build my own products or whatever it is. Uh, so I think that's a good way of framing that as well. Uh, I know you've been involved with successful launches of a lot of these courses. They've had large audiences and a lot of students and people have been very happy with the results they've gotten from these courses. But a question I have for you is why do people fail doing what you do? So you've been very successful at making large launches and getting a lot of audiences. But what are things a lot of people get wrong when trying to launch an online course or promote a product that's brand new? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one huge mistake that people make is assuming that your customer or the prospective student or the client thinks about your work as much as you think about it. So for us as creators, as business owners, as marketers, the product is hundred percent of the pie. Think of a pie chart. It's, it's the full pie, but for your audience, you are maybe one to 5% of all the messaging that they're seeing per day. When they're scrolling through Instagram, they're scrolling through Twitter, they're checking their email, you're a tiny slice of their world. So assuming that, that your audience is a captive audience that's listening and paying attention with 100% mental energy is really not gonna set you up for success. Your, your marketing, your positioning, your offer has to be immediately understandable. If people have to think about it to understand it, or if it's confusing, it's game over. You've already lost. They've already moved on. No one cares enough to try to understand what it is that you're saying. The onus is on you. The responsibility is on you to make the offer super clear, to make your messaging, your value prop, your perceived value really, really clear to the point where it's extremely obvious and undeniable that upon an initial glance, I understand what's happening. So assume, I would say number one is assume that um, your audience is reading whatever you write, listening to whatever you say with 10% of their brain maximum. And knowing that, well, what do we do with that information? Well, if we know that, then we have a higher bar for ourselves as creators to be really clear about how you add value to their lives, how you're different, who you are, how you benefit them, right? It's just, it's a higher bar to, to, to speak to someone who's using 10% of their energy reading through what you're doing. So I think that's a really big one. The second one is there's, there's a spectrum. I call it the spectrum, the brand versus performance marketing spectrum. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have brand marketing <clears throat> that includes stuff like influencer or celebrity endorsements, PR, 
great design, great product or brand experience, you know, Audi sponsoring all the, the Iron Man movies for the past 10 years, product placement, right? That's brand marketing. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have performance marketing. So that's SEO, PPC, conversion rate optimization, AdWords, you know, certain types of email marketing. So Facebook ads, and there's a trade-off between what you're optimizing for. So brand marketing, you, you're optimizing for long-term brand equity, long-term brand trust, but you have worse short-term conversions. There's worse sales in the short run. With performance, you have less good long-term brand equity because you can come off, let's say done poorly, it's spammy, and, but you have better, you have better short-term sales. So there's a, a different payback cycle, a different timeline of how impatient are you to get returns? If you're kind of impatient, you should probably do performance. If you, if you are playing the long game and you're in it for the long game, then, then brand marketing is, is probably a better bet for, for building trust and standing up. So understanding when you go into a launch, when you go into building a product as an organization, most organizations, most founders, most marketers skew on one side or the other of that spectrum. Your, your natural instinct tends to lean a little bit towards brand or a little bit towards performance. So understanding which way do we lean as an organization is important because it, it influences all of your marketing strategy, your, the tactics that you're picking thereafter. And it also helps you pick tactics that are more realistic. So if you don't have a lot of cash and you need to see results right away, then doing performance marketing is probably bad. You don't want to pick brand marketing because you're, you're going to try measuring the brand marketing using performance metrics, looking at conversions and, you know, Cartier or Hermes, Hermes, I never can pronounce it right. Hermes, yeah, um, you know, they're, they're not trying to convert you to buy a $10,000 purse in a Facebook ad mm-hmm. or in a one-time transactional interaction, right? They're playing the long game so that over the course of 20 years, when you're finally able to afford an investment bag that you're going to think of that. So I think understanding um, where you are in that brand versus performance spectrum is is something that's hugely important to do that a lot of people um, don't necessarily think about until later when you're caught in debates, endless debates, where one side is saying, no, this isn't measurable enough. And the other side is saying, yeah, but this is really spammy. Like this doesn't look good for our brand. So you get into these these little squabbles when if you step back and think about where are we as an organization on the spectrum, how can we design marketing strategies and tactics for a launch that fit that, that sets you up for, for success a lot more. Yeah. And I think you made a really interesting point on that in your article about that spectrum, where you talked about the decision-making process you went through with launching the Alt-MBA, how, you know, you knew you're very aware of these short-term strategies. If your goal was, let's just get as many signups on the launch as possible. You know, you'd use Seth's picture, you'd use a bunch of affiliates, you do all this influencer marketing and all this type of stuff. But it's like your goal was to create a very long-term very credible kind of high, high status course. And so you didn't, you know, just dangle these very like quick hooks, like this is how much money your alumni are making and sign up for exclusive content. You like purposely chose to avoid some of those short-term tactics to establish the long-term reputation that's allowed it to endure and be reputable for so long. And I think that's a very valuable thing for anyone to consider what their goals are and how those strategies play into that. Yeah. Another way of thinking about, you know, diving deeper into the topic of brand versus performance is that you can increase desire or you can decrease friction. Those are both ways of adding value. 
So decreasing friction includes stuff like, you know, putting more stuff above the fold, making the button bigger, making it brighter, adding more discounts, adding promotions and, you know, reverse promotions where the price goes up, you know, every week. So there's a bunch of ways to reduce friction. And all of these are, are low hanging fruit levers if you want to pull them. But just because you remove friction doesn't mean that someone wants your stuff more. Mm-hmm. The, the assumption is if I make it easy enough for you, you're going to want this. Yeah. We've all been offered stuff that was literally free that we still didn't want. And if you think about some of the the biggest life choices that you feel good about, like let's say picking your partner, your spouse, do you pick them because they were the easiest option? No, probably not. There were probably obstacles that, that you pick them despite those obstacles because you knew that they were worth it, right? So thinking about increasing desire, if we think about a box of value, you can lower, lower the floor, right? And decrease that friction, or you can raise the ceiling Mm -hmm. and increase desire. And when you increase desire, it, it's, it's shocking that people are willing to um, jump through hoops for things that they really want and care about. Anytime you've seen a line outside a restaurant, mm-hmm. that's an example of friction that, well, if there was no line, right? Like, wouldn't that be decreasing friction? But the line adds to the experience, actually, right? Mm-hmm. I think Superhuman, the email app, is another great recent example of needing to do an onboarding call, needing to jump through a bunch of hoops, right? It's, I think it's however X dollars per month, whereas most email is free. So there's a bunch of points of friction that, you know, even though there's that friction, they've increased desire enough with their positioning, their messaging, really knowing their target audience, articulating their value prop that people still want it. So when you're thinking about your product, instead of just doing those low hanging fruit levers and thinking, well, you know, we have to do all these spammy things to get people to click so we can convert them quickly. Think about how can you increase desire so that even if there were friction, someone would still want this and someone would still think that this is worth it and this is a no-brainer? Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about, about levers, right? And the way you're thinking about this, like in not abstract terms, but definitely broken down terms, I think is an example of what you call rigorous thinking. And one of the components of that rigorous thinking is applying first principles to to what you do and, and the ideas that you come up with. And you apply first principles to the companies that you work with and your clients. Could you explain to our listeners what first principles are? Because I think it's kind of a buzzword that people uh, you know, throw around that a lot of people, including me, don't really uh, completely understand. And how, are, how is using those first principles useful in the context of what you do for your clients? Yeah, so first principles are the opposite of learning by analogy. So I think there's, there's a specific definition of first principles. Let's just say principles so that I'm not, you know, butchering mm-hmm. the first principles definition, but learning by analogy is basically seeing what other people are doing and then saying, okay, well, we should probably do something like that. And anyone who's ever worked at a company has had their boss say, oh, I just saw at a conference that so-and-so was doing this. We should do that. Or I just noticed our competitor started doing this. We should look into it. That's reasoning by analogy and looking at things. Um, thinking more from, from principles, concepts, frameworks, I call that rigorous thinking because it's about understanding basic truths about the way that people interpret information, the way that they act, the way that people think, taking into account consumer psychology and behavioral economics, knowing what we know about humans, and building that into your marketing plan, into your 
value proposition into your, so a big part of why I think first principles and, and looking at frameworks are important is because a lot of times people will um, want to copy what someone else is doing. On the surface, you'll see that, well, this was a, a five-step launch or, you know, this online workshop has, you know, coaches, so we should have coaches. It was two weeks, so ours should be two weeks. And you think there's something special about the coaches or the two weeks or, you know, the $750 price point or, or $4,500 price point. You think there's something inherently about those price points or, or those features and elements that is set in stone and somehow the reason why it works. And that's, a lot, that's usually not the case. Those are all expressions for strategies and thinking behind the scenes. So choosing a price point, for example, you shouldn't choose a price point because another course has this price point. You should choose a price point by thinking about what are our customers' alternatives when they think about who to choose from? You know, we're one among, you know, this universe. So what are their workarounds? What are they, how are they currently solving the problem? What's their willingness to pay? How have they demonstrated that before? Are these people who have never paid us a cent, so they're free subscribers? Or are the people that regularly buy things from us? Because your relationship with that person is different. And you can price differently when you think about those things. So we'll use price kind of as, as the one variable because there's so many variables, but we'll say, you know, price for this example. Um, what would make this price feel like a no-brainer? What makes something someone say this is expensive or this feels expensive? Because we all overspend and underspend on some things. What you find to be egregiously expensive that you would never spend on, I might think I love that. Like I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat, and vice versa. So, with your target audience, what would they consider to be something that feels like it's worth the money? And then what are the visceral reactions that people have, right? This is one of the core principles that I talk a lot about is the visceral snap impression that someone has. So when you think about a price point in, let's say 125 or 150, how does that feel compared to $700? How does that feel compared to $300? How does that com feel compared to $50? What is the anchor point that your customer has in their mind before hearing that price? If they are only used to premium products, that's the only product that you have right now is a premium one in the $1,000 mark, then offering something in the $100 mark feels, wow, like that's a great way to get introduced to the content without needing to shell out a bunch of stuff. Like I actually really want to do that thing, but this is a great way for me to, to get introduced, right? So how, thinking about all the, the subconscious clues that, that we have around perceived value, that it's not just whether $150 is, in, is expensive or cheap. There's no objective, is it expensive or cheap? It's what is that person's anchor point? What are they comparing you to? And what's the perceived value? So really thinking about these principles that, that allow you to move away from just copying someone and assuming it'll work, but really thinking deeper about what were their assets what are their boundaries? What are the constraints? If you have a completely different set of assets and constraints, then you can't copy what they did because, you know, maybe they had a huge sum of capital and, and a huge audience. So there's certain things that you can do with that, but maybe you have great relationships with people that are usually hard to reach. And, and you're one of the few business people with a computer science background. So you can bring your vision to life and build a lot faster, right? So you, th those are great assets. So people with 
people have, and, and organizations have different sets of assets. They have different constraints and boundaries that they're working within. And when you start there, it's a lot easier to know, all right, who should we really copy? What should we copy? Because I'm not saying don't copy anyone. I'm saying, you know, think more strategically about what aspect do we want to take inspiration from? Given our situation, how do we make it our own? And that's a great way for you to stay plugged in to what's going on because, you know, that's still important. As much as we want to say ignore what's going on, it's hard. So you can stay plugged in, but you can also adapt what you're seeing to fit your own situation. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic kind of framework in and of itself for thinking about the different variables involved in decision-making and organizing your business and putting together the pieces to present to your audience in terms of pricing and content and form delivery, uh, as well as the importance of knowing the specific target audience you're trying to reach and thinking from their perspective. And I think that's been a theme among a lot of your advice so far just already is, you know, not having the me perspective, but having like, who am I trying to sell this to? Where are they coming from? I only have 10% of their attention with that in mind. How should I approach this decision? Like all of that, I think is really valuable and people should go through that step-by-step process and ask themselves those questions when considering how to approach the situations. Uh, But I want to now ask you about another topic you have some interesting frameworks on, which is signaling and personal credibility and kind of establishing credibility. I know Kyle and I, in our pre-call, you mentioned that part of the reason you were willing to say yes to us was the fact that we'd already come up prepared with a list of questions rather than, you know, taking a risk on us and how signaling can help mitigate risk. And I also want to bring this into another kind of topic you wrote about the average versus the cumulative when you're trying to get an enthusiastic yes from someone uh, when approaching them for something. So I was hoping you could explain a little bit about that concept of signaling and how you do it right in the terms of getting a yes or establishing personal credibility. Yeah. So we all give off, whether you're an individual or a company, different signals that are pretty subconscious that our audiences are picking up on. So This is why you can land on a website and within three seconds decide if it looks legit or not. This is why certain companies, you just look at the logo or you see their site or you see a pamphlet and you think that they're a multinational company that's been around for a hundred years. And when you see other sites and it looks like one person, like it's clear that they're, they're a solo. So there's, there's all kinds of little cues that, that are based on design, based on copywriting and language that um, are signals that you want to be aware of. You want to be aware of it because people are constantly bucketing information. They're constantly putting companies in buckets. They're putting people in buckets. They're putting products in buckets to help organize information because there's just, there's too much going on and we're looking for mental shortcuts. So you want to make sure that the bucket that you're being put in is the bucket that you actually want to be put in. The problem is a lot of times when you're not aware of, of the signals that you might actually be giving off, you end up being put in a bucket that you don't want to be put in. And then that anchor has been set and it's really hard to dislodge anchors. So for example, let's say that you are a credible strategic person, but you have Facebook ads for your company that come across as spammy. They come across as transactional. You're using copy that looks like what every other spammy Um, let's say agency, let's just pretend you're an agency. You're, you're using copy that looks like every other agency that's trying to get, um, desperate customers to bite so that, you know, you're promising we can double your sales in, you know, with this proven process, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're doing all those things and people immediately put you in that bucket, so it doesn't matter if you actually are not that because you never get a chance 
to prove that you are different. So thinking about, am I reminding people of the thing that I want to remind them of is really important. So when you're launching a new product, thinking about, does this remind people of the kinds of products that I want them to be reminded of? Simple, simple human, the trash can is a great example. So trash cans before simple human were, I don't know, five, $10 plastic white bins that you get at Walmart, right? So if, if simple human advertised and, and did their brand marketing the same way that Rubbermaid does it, Rubbermaid makes a lot of trash cans, they wouldn't be where they are today. If you go to simple humans website, it looks like Apple. There are hero shots of these shiny stainless steel trash cans. They talk about product features like, like their iPhone specs. They talk about how you can have 20,000 steps before it breaks, uh, which is the equivalent of like 25 years, something like that, right? Um, they talk about their state-of-the-art technology. So everything in the verbiage, the language, the visuals, the photography style, the illustrations, the, the site layout, the naming, all of these are variables and levers that you should think about to make sure that, all right, if, we are, if we're calling ourselves a luxury product, do we actually look like one? Are we priced like one? Is our quality that of a luxury product? Is the packaging, is you know, the paper thickness of the tag? All of these things are clues and signals for customers to think, you know, is this legit? Is this for real? Is this worth um, looking into? And is this for people like me? And customers and audiences are constantly asking themselves that with everything that they encounter, whether it's a person or a brand. So thinking about, you know, what does this remind me of? Who is this for? Um, is this for people like me? Making sure you're getting ahead of those questions, getting in front of it, being proactive so that people aren't just slotting you in this bucket, slotting you in that bucket. This really applies to career switching too, for people, people as products. So if you think about it, you as a person are a product. And it's very obvious when people are interviewing for roles that people are evaluating you. They're, they're seeing what you bring. And a huge, a huge um, challenge with career switchers is people tend to anchor on exactly what you were doing most recently. It's hard for them to imagine you doing something else. Even something that's that clearly there are transferable skills <clears throat> for the hiring manager for HR. It's like, oh, I don't know, this person seems risky, which is super frustrating for the candidate. So if you're a candidate, think about how do I anchor my perceived value, the perception of me with the hiring manager so that they see what I am able to bring to the table, that I am proactively shaping this narrative, defining that box, getting in front of any risks or red flags or objections that they might have getting in front of those. So they never even have a chance to mention those objections. I would say that by the time someone mentions an objection, it's already too late. So mm. with smart positioning, with smart framing, you can get around those objections altogether and show that you are actually a really great person for the job. Even though if they just looked at your resume, things look a little bit dis disconnected. It's your job to shape that narrative and really get in front of it and give the right signals and clues so that that person sees that you are an obviously good fit. Yeah, and like you said, that applies to, to getting a job, that applies to selling things, that applies to, and that kind of rolls into my next question, which has to do with, you know, our audience is, is mostly students and young adults that are looking at the next step of their life. And one thing that Lewis and I 
are are trying to figure out is whether or not we want to become an entrepreneur right out of um, college or get a job, attach ourselves to a company. And you know, I know we talked about this briefly in our, in our pre-call, but what was your experience and, and how did you frame that decision between starting a company and getting a job at Gap? I think when I graduated back then, I didn't really know that that starting a company was really an option. It just, it wasn't something that the people around me were doing, which I think is a, is a great um, first point to think about is the people that are immediately around you tend to shape your expectations of what is normal. That's a great case for surrounding yourself with people that you want to be more like because subconsciously it normalizes certain behavior. So when I was graduating, um, going to management and consulting, working at Bain, BCG, this was considered the holy grail. Or going into a, a company like Google, like L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, these were, these were the kinds of companies that, that my peers were um, applying to. So for me, a lot of it was also more practical, just thinking, okay, we graduate, we start a new job. So I, you know, in hindsight, given that all advice is autobiographical, so that's mm -hmm. a caveat, I loved starting at a bigger company. I feel like if you, if you want to step outside the box, you have to know where the box is in the first place. So working at a big company, an established organization is the box, right? Once you know what that is, then you can decide what you want to break about that system. If you don't even know what the system is, it's hard to know what are the different elements that you can push back on. So, so that's one thing. I think the other is it really created a solid foundation for me for understanding how a company runs, what a good manager looks like. I think a lot of times if you go directly into running your own business, you're figuring out a ton of stuff on your own, which is great. There's, there's so much learning there. At the same time, you have fewer direct models where you're seeing the day-to-day -day way that they operate. So you're, you, know, you might be reading articles or, or reading advice, but, but the proximity of being around different managers and leaders, seeing different leadership styles, seeing them handle situations differently, those all become data points for you to know either I want to be more like that or I want to not ever be like that. And so it's good. It's a good um, baseline where you can then deviate from that baseline. I also think that it's, it's not that, that, you know, one is actually better than the other. I think that right now there's this, there's a surge of, of glorifying startup founders and that everyone should start a company. Everyone should, you know, be a hustler, start your own thing, you know, don't work for a company. And I think that's a little bit too black and white, that it could be the right thing for you. But if it, if it feels like it's not the right thing for you, it doesn't mean that you are now relegated to a gray cubicle for the next 40 years. I feel like right now there's that dichotomy where it's like, oh, like you either have a fulfilling career where you experiment and build cool stuff or you die bureaucrat. And, and that's, that's, that's way too black and white. There's absolutely a spectrum and a whole lot of roles and ways to contribute and work on interesting projects and work with great people who care a lot while still being at a company. So I think that's the, that's the big thing I want to get across is, you know, as, as you're thinking about what do you want to do, thinking more nuanced about, about the different options that are available out there so that, so that you don't jump to a conclusion that, you know, you can really only be on one extreme end of the spectrum with founding your own company or being a corporate drone.
I feel like you're talking directly to me right there with some of that black or white though. I've kind of felt that way before. It's like, okay, we're either starting our own this and that project and it's going to be amazing or we're going to get jobs and give up on life and sit in that great cubicle. So I've definitely felt that there is that portrayal of it as that black and white situation, but kind of as you've identified from your own autobiographical experience, you can find uh, an experience within an organization to get the experience to, first of all, like you said, learn what the box is, but also be picking up that skill set of working on different projects, learning how to manage people, learning just the actual base skill set of putting together products and project management and all these things that are genuinely useful later on when you do come about your own project. And that's something Kyle and I had also discussed in a previous episode with uh, Chris Spaggs was he's kind of this software engineer who'd wanted to make, he's always wanted to have his own software company and he wasn't successful at it for like a a number of tries. So kind of what he did when he wasn't successful at it was just turn around and keep writing code for other people. And then when eventually an idea hit, he was a really good developer. So it's kind of that same idea of if you, you don't have to come out of college right out of the gates with an amazing idea and an amazing skill set, like it's not a bad use of time in the interim to work for another person, get taught by some people who might be good mentors to you within an organization and acquire skills. I have a question along those lines because you had a really positive experience in your time working for other people and these other companies. How do you filter a company or a team or a project uh, that you can go work for to determine if it's going to be one of those environments where you are kind of cubicled versus being empowered to learn skills and actually pick up things that are going to be beneficial no matter where you go next? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first one is thinking about what you want to learn at this phase in your career. So for me, coming right out of school, working at the Gap, I did a rotational program where I rotated between Old Navy, Gap, and Banana Republic in different core retail functions. So it was an incredible high-level view of a multi-million dollar company that's been around for 40 years on how they run everything. And a lot of those foundational elements, especially um, after the rotational program, I became an analyst where I was forecasting sales and inventory, profit levels, deciding how much to discount something to move units so that people would buy them to sell through in our, in our forecasts. So a lot of analytical skills, a lot of understanding numbers, being able to, to see data and pull out the story that's in the data of what what customer behavior is actually happening based on looking at numbers alone without anecdotal data. All of that was, was tremendously useful in shaping my thinking in a way where 15 years later, I'm still using a lot of the skills that I learned back then. So thinking about what do I want to learn? What can I be exposed to that I otherwise wouldn't be exposed to? Really taking the early years of your career to realize that you're essentially being paid to learn. You're not that productive yet. You're really not. Like you have great energy and, and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but from a, from a productivity perspective, people have kind of low-ish expectations of you compared to later on in your career. Like, the, right, that makes sense. The expectations get higher as you become more senior and you start getting paid more. So I think the early years of your career are actually this really magical time where when I think back, I was so preoccupied with advancing and wanting to get to that next level and, you know, not wanting to be so young, but, but really wanting to be more senior that I think I overlooked that these are, these are the best years right after college to be able to ask questions that later on people expect you to know, to be able to experiment with things and build skills that later on people expect you to know. 
right? So it's actually this really golden period where you have a lot of leeway, a lot of range of motion to try different things and build your skill sets, but you're a T-shaped founder or a T-shaped marketer or a T-shaped strategist and to understand the realm of, of what's out there and build those skills in a way that, you know, later on you are probably going to become more specialized, you know, there's higher expectations, et cetera, that you, you have less opportunities for. So whatever it is that you're doing, I always like thinking, what's the, what's the scarce part? What's scarce here? And early career, what's scarce is, uh, when you think about, think about your career arc, what's scarce is time when you can ask questions without people really judging you, try a bunch of things without people judging you. And that really happens in, you know, early career without repercussions. I think that's a great framing of that situation. Uh, Kyle, do you want to move to the bonus round now? Sounds good to me, Lewis. I'll let you start out with that first question we got then. Okay, great. So we talked briefly about low cost, high benefit purchases, one being maybe the Ember mug that you've been sipping out of. So what are a few of those purchases that you've made in the last six months to a year that you would recommend to anyone listening to this podcast? And plants might be one of them looking at some of those plants. That's one that came to my mind. For sure. Plants. Absolutely. I have 50 plants behind the camera here, closer to the window because they need more sun. So these are the, the lower light ones. Plants. Absolutely. For brightening your space, um, adding some life. That's one. We talked about simple human. So Lewis, you and I are both fans of simple human. Anything that, that takes a basic everyday item that you use a lot and elevates it into a better experience, I think is worth the money. So OXO, I think is another great brand that does that. I have an OXO sink train that I'm obsessed about. I never thought I would say I was obsessed about a sink train, but every time I wash my hands or do the dishes, I think about how good this train looks versus the one that, you know, just came with the house. So little, little upgrades like that. You know, I think a lot of times I was, I, I grew up thinking, that you should save for big purchases that you maybe use once in a while, you know, and you keep, keep the nice stuff tucked away for special occasions. But my thinking on that has really shifted. I'd rather have daily items that I use a lot that are high quality, that have great design and, and is just such an easy way to elevate your life. A tea kettle. I have a Bodum gooseneck tea kettle. Oh that, yeah. Um, is awesome also. Is that on your list too? It's, all, it's definitely on the buy list for sure. I think a work wardrobe is another great example. I think that this idea that we have to wear different stuff all the time is the most, it's just this, this consumer, consumerism driven lie that, that we've been fed. And if you have a few go-to outfits, Obama, I read once, only had two suits and Steve Jobs has his signature black turtleneck. I mean, it was Isimiyaki, to be fair, but um, he had his signature black turtleneck, right? I think embracing the leaning into things that make your life easier and a work wardrobe definitely does that. Removing, removing mental load and decision fatigue from your plate so that you can streamline different areas of your life and, uh, and elevate that, just that daily living experience. I've never regretted a quality purchase. Like that's something I keep trying to remind myself when it's, if you can't afford the nicer version of something and it's something you're going to use frequently, it's like kind of creating something that you can use every single day that will make you happy versus being frustrated every single day when you use the lower quality one. It's like, is the extra $30 to get the drill with the warranty 
that's going to last forever. That's a pleasure to use because it's just got like, you know, that really nice tactile feedback it feels right when you use it in your hands versus the one that like every single time you use it, it's going to break. And I don't know if people are using power tools every day. I have been lately. Even just like a keyboard. <laughs> I've been like, this keyboard was like, you know, just the Apple magic keyboard. It's like a hundred bucks or whatever. But for me, it's just like, it's a pleasure to use it every single time. And that's something I spend the majority of my time doing. Uh, and yeah. Standing desk is another example of something I've been thinking about lately. It's totally. Like 20, I, 10 I, hours I, a day. I recently got a standing desk and an ergonomic chair for those exact reasons. That if you're sitting all day, if you're working all day, like most of us are, um, finding these quality purchases, even if they are a little bit more expensive, I think it's just totally worth it. I completely agree. Uh, so a question I have for you, I was reading the about page of your website and you kind of have this list of uh, current clients that you're working with. And I was intimidated just by reading this list there's like 10, 15 projects. I might be exaggerating the numbers. There's a lot of projects. So I have a question about how you're managing your time. Cause that's a consideration Colin. I've been having uh, kind of during the quarantine, we've had so much time for work that we've piled on this project and this project and this project because a social life, which used to be maybe three hours of the day is just gone. And so that's tempted us to acquire project after project after project. And now it's like, okay, the semester is about to start again. I'm about to have 12 hours of classes, another 20 hours of studying. So I have a question about how you manage so many disparate projects and companies and clients and choose and frame the decision to take on opportunities or stick with what you have and put more into what you're already doing and kind of some of those decisions and considerations. Yeah, that's a great question. The list of clients includes past clients also. So okay. not <laughs> I kind of thought you were a superhero. At the for exact same time. Yeah. There's, there's an ebb and flow with busyness. And I think instead of trying to make every day or every week perfectly balanced. I like zooming out to think about in this phase of my life, are things a little bit more hectic? Because there are, there are, there are phases and things come in waves. You've probably noticed this you know, in your own life where there's a, there's a wave where everything seems to happen all at once and it's just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like nothing's happening and you wish more stuff was happening, you're ready for it and it's just, it's not coming. So when things feel overwhelming, I try to remind myself that this is one of those waves. Soon this wave will be over and it'll be a lull. So enjoy whether it's a wave, whether it's a lull, instead of trying to, to optimize for having balance every day or every week or every month, I try to, to go with the rhythm of what is, what is happening right now. The other thing too, I'll, I'll add to that is, I love this phrase, all good problems. So mm -hmm. if you think about the problems that you have, would you trade these for another set of problems? When I think about that, I feel really lucky to have the problems that I have. And yes, am I trying to figure them out? Yes. Am I, you know, stumped with, you know, not being sure what to do next on something? Does it feel high stakes? Am I worried about making a mistake? Yeah, all those things. But could it be a lot worse? Yes. So with problems, your brain will invent problems when you have none. We know this, like this is fact. So when things are going well, it's not just, people can't just enjoy that things are going well. They're gonna make up other things to be worried about that normally they wouldn't be worried about if they just had other bigger problems on their plate. So I, I think embracing that there will always be challenges that you're dealing with. There will always be things that are kind of giving you stress or anxiety, but knowing that overall things are, you're decently lucky to be dealing with this set of problems I think that always reminds me to put things in perspective. I, I definitely found that very helpful because I've kind of been trying to apply unnatural amounts of certainty and rhythm to like a set of projects. I'm like, okay, I got 160 hours in a week and I'm sleeping for 63 hours and I'm going to devote 40 to classes. And then it's like, 
it's not going to, some weeks I'm going to need to devote 60 to classes and some weeks I'm not even going to go to lectures and just accepting that over this period of time, some things will get a focus and some won't and there'll be wells and there'll be hectic weeks is really helpful. And you mentioned a point there, kind of that mental framing of viewing it as a good thing that you have this set of problems. Another one you talked to us before about that I want to expand on or let you expand on because is the idea of luck is a constraint that exists in every situation. So you're, you know, brought up the idea of you can always look at what you're doing as problems and you're being, and you're grateful to have those problems. But another positive way of looking at things is the idea of kind of taking ownership over the luck in different situations. So I was hoping you could explain what that is and how you can also use that as a positive constraint for understanding the situation that you're in and being successful at it. Yeah. There's a, there's a psychological principle about how when things work well and work out for us, we attribute it to our own intelligence and competence. And when things work well for other people, we attribute it to luck. So when I say to account for luck, I mean that when things, whether things work out or not work out, to not give yourself too much credit if it works, but also don't beat yourself up too much when it doesn't work. I think anyone who's ever interviewed for a job and been rejected and saw the person who was hired has been like, really? That person? Right? So, you know, there's so many factors that might have contributed to that. It's not necessarily you. But also when things do work, when you're the one who gets picked or when, when something that you're working on does work, not being so blind or, or egotistical to think that, well, it was because I was super strategic about all of it and I counted for blah, 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 blah. I mean, yes, you could have been strategic, but there was also an element of luck there. Um, and a lot of times when, when things work, we don't analyze them as much because it worked. We celebrate and then we move on. We count it as a win. When things don't work, that's when we really, we tear it apart. We analyze it. We, oh, I should have done this. Or in that moment, if I had just said that, things would have been different. So we don't really analyze our wins as much. And it's easy to then kind of in a high level strokes, think that, oh, well, what I did there was just good. So when I say to account for luck, it's when you're looking at your successes to think about what contributed to that, what element was things working in my favor that had nothing to do with me, like the person being in a pretty good mood or the person right before me being really shitty, all those things make you look better. So it's not that you were just so much better. It's that, well, there were other situational factors. So, so thinking about the situational, situational factors that contribute to an outcome, whether it worked or didn't work, I think that helps us learn more regardless of whether something worked or didn't. You get smarter takeaways from it when you think and see more clearly about here's how I contributed to the outcome. Here were the situational slash luck factors. That's really interesting. So we've got one last question for you here, Wes. What book have you gifted the most? And also, what's your favorite Seth Godin book? Ooh, all right. My favorite Seth book is probably Lynchpin. And the book that I gift the most was a book that Seth gave me when I first joined the team. And it's On the Art of Writing Copy by Herschel Gordon-Lewis. It's a copywriting book that um, is super dense and pretty intense. So it's not something that you necessarily read as much as you study and turn to as a reference book, I would say. So in terms of, of leveling up your work, I think all of us could be clear at thinking and um, expressing and articulating what we're thinking. Um, and this book does a great job of helping you with that. Awesome. I've been researching copywriting and think it would help me tremendously to learn more about it and practice it more rigorously. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I really enjoyed 
not just hearing ideas now, but really diving deeper into your blog in preparation for this call and going through the backlogs and seeing the connection of ideas and watching kind of how they progressed in the different examples you provided. Uh, I think people should definitely check that out, but I'm going to let you send people. How can people uh, find or support you if they want to hear more about your work or get in touch? I have a weekly newsletter where I write about rigorous fundamentals, a lot of what we've talked about here that apply to both work and life. So uh, you can subscribe at westko.com. And I also tweet bite-sized nuggets on a lot of what we talked about here. Uh, And I'm at at Wes underscore KO. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Great. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Having Wes KO on was really cool. I mean, the way that she breaks everything down into its component parts and then looks at it and thinks about it all in first principles, especially marketing, because that's, you know, her, her field of expertise, but really with everything is just incredible and also inspiring for me to try and emulate that in my own fields. Lewis, what do you think? Yeah, I think she's very well aligned with a lot of what you and I are trying to do in life. Uh, She tries to do everything with the long-term in mind rather than the short-term and kind of explains the outsized returns you can get from doing things that way. If you're willing to sacrifice those instant gratification, instant sales, instant conversions in favor of a more long-term reputable approach, things will be better for you if you're patient enough for the long-term. One thing we mentioned is to give people a call to action uh, to make listening to this podcast not just another form of entrepreneurship entertainment, and instead making it more likely to lead to useful results or a bias towards action. What's something from this interview we should leave people with? Hmm. Spiky point of view? Like writing is thinking, spiky point of view. Or sure, uh, Lewis, I think that some of our listeners, the next time that they're in a, in a group setting and, and have the, the thought to say something that everybody in the room might not agree with, that they should do it. I think that doing it produces, like you said, outsized returns for themselves if what they're saying provides value to the conversation. But I think doing that takes practice and practicing that takes getting started and that whoever's listening to this should take that step. I completely agree, Kyle. Back when I was vegan, I had written this document uh, called Arguments for Being Vegan because I was so used to being attacked in every direction for why I was vegan. That I was just like, I just need to have my arguments ready, locked and loaded, one, two, three, ready to go. And that helped me in future conversations, explain it more readily to people and not necessarily make them vegan, that wasn't the goal, but for them to understand my point of view. So I think something you know, that's a core foundational belief, whether you hate social media or even just political commentary, who cares like what side you're on, just forcing yourself to take a little bit of time to think through the strong opinions you have and have them well articulated will make you more credible when you present them the next time you're in a group of people. So that's Mm -hmm. our challenge for today is to think through some of your strongly held opinions and document how and why you feel that way and kind of put together just a short elevator pitch, you could call it, as to what is compelling about it and some good arguments for it. So you just really impress people and you rattle off the facts and figures and things right off the top of your head. That's this episode. That's our call to action. If you like that and you want to give us other feedback, we're extremely reachable on social media. Extremely reachable. (laughs) Not necessarily immediate responses, but a response. So you can direct message the show account on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or Kyle and I individually if you can figure out how to find us, which, spoiler alert, won't be hard. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Give us some feedback. Hit us with a subscribe. Hit us with a rating review. And we will see you in a week or so. 
with the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.